He was a great poet of the 11th century who was beheaded in the 21st. Abu Allah al-Ma'ari, an anti-religious free thinker who some say inspired Dante to write the Divine Comedy and who we know was read by Franz Kafka, was perhaps surprisingly one of the most popular poets of his day. An outspoken vegan and a virtual hermit who considered giving birth a crime, he was both condemned and applauded in his day and in ours. And he is our subject today on the Golden Age of Islam. So please stay tuned. Okay, welcome back. All right. Uh, thank you very much to all our listeners for your kind support and your kind comments. Uh, we're a little bit delayed in getting these episodes out because of the COVID pandemic, and uh, that's forcing us to redo all our lessons to try and keep the school open here. So uh, please forgive me for not getting these out in a timely manner, but we're glad to be back with you today. So, Today we're looking at the life of Abu Allah al-Ma'ari. And this, if nothing else, is going to destabilize a lot of stereotypes of the Muslim world. The fact that he was popular in the 11th century, but attacked as a heretic in the 21st century, that tells us something right there. Uh, so he's a very intriguing character, and one that some still, many still consider to be one of the greatest writers in the Arabic language, greatest thinkers in the Arab world, but he's a very controversial figure, and I think we'll see why. So who was this man? Well, he was born in the small village of Ma'ara in Syria, which even he describes as a pretty sad place at the time. Uh, that's where his name comes from. Uh, this was within the domain of the city-state of Aleppo, which today we all know because of really the tragedy of the Syrian war. It's been one of the worst-hit cities. But also, if you have a good memory, you might remember we did an episode on Aleppo way back in the early episodes of this series. And we talked about its ruler, Saif Adawla. We use this as an example of the basically independent states that existed throughout the Abbasid Caliphate. Now, the Abbasid power peaked about 200 years before this, and they would spend a long time, much longer than they spent really ruling, as basically figureheads ruling or supposedly ruling over a large collection of fairly independent Muslim states. And so back then we talked about Aleppo and we picked it as one of the most uh, successful examples of these. Saif Adawla, if you may remember, uh, he was a very uh, successful ruler of a small, basically independent city-state. 
he sponsored various scientists and philosophers, including the great philosopher Al-Farabi, but he is probably remembered today, in fact, he's definitely remembered today, because he hired the greatest Arab poet by just about everybody's uh, acclamation, that was Al-Mutanabi, to write poems about him. So some of the greatest poems in the Arabic language are about this man, Saifa Daula, who probably no one would have remembered if he hadn't hired Al-Mutanabi to write about him. And it worked. It turned out to be a good investment because his name has been enshrined in history. Unlike all the other hundreds of rulers of city-states, which nobody remembers. Okay, anyway, Saif Adawla is dead, and his son Saad takes over. This is about the time when al-Ma'ari goes to Aleppo to get an education. And as, as you've seen, they've already got some of the best scholars in the region, so it's a good place to go and, and get an education. He studies in Aleppo under Muslim and Christian teachers. They had both, who were very prominent there. Uh, And he goes uh, to Baghdad, of course, the capital of the empire, and studies with some of the greatest there. He later studies in Tripoli and Lebanon. Um, Meanwhile, in the process of his travels and his education, There are two events that really have a big impact on him. First of all, uh, about the age of four, he gets smallpox and he loses his sight. And that probably happened gradually over a number of years, but he is blind for the rest of his life. Now, this is something um, that left him quite bitter. He has a fairly negative uh, view of life after this. But the other thing that happened is he spent time with a Christian monk, you know, what what we would probably call a hermit, and he engaged in a lot of debates with him. And it seems to be from this that he developed his skepticism, Uh, because what he did was he was exposed to, of course, his Islamic education, but then he heard all the arguments from this Christian, and he could see that different religions had different arguments, different ways of saying that they were correct, and his conclusion is going to be that, well, none of them are correct, because you can argue for any one of them. Well, so what did he believe in? El-Ma'ari was a dedicated believer in rationalism. Now, we have talked a lot in, in several episodes about rationalism versus religion on this program and how some basically redefined religion to effectively make it subordinate to reason. They didn't come out and say that, but that was about the net effect. But those folks always asserted their Muslim beliefs. In fact, they said that they were being good Muslims um, by placing such a value on rationalism. If you remember our most recent episodes uh, about Ibn Rushdi, for example. Well, Al-Ma'ari goes a lot further than that, okay? He's not one of those. I mean, he is so far on the side of rationalism that he would definitely be called an agnostic in today's world. 
although by the the standards of the time, he's what we call a skeptic because that's about as far as you could get away with going. I mean, you you were not going to come out and um, be an outright atheist, although he certainly seems to um, have been one. He was accused of that, but of course you couldn't come out and do that. But a key part of his philosophy and the reason he got this idea was his impression that all the religions were claiming that they had the truth and they could defend their positions. If you talk to Zoroastrian, if you talk to Shia, if you talk to Jews, you talk to uh, Hindus, they could all very logically defend why their religion was the absolute truth. And rather than picking one and saying this is the truth, he said, you know, that points to the fact that uh, probably none of them have the truth. And we see this in some of his early writings. Of course, he was a great poet, and he's remembered for the, the quality of his poetry, but he's also remembered for some of the, you know, intriguing thoughts and provocative questions he brings up. One of the best examples of this is his collection called the Lezumiat. Now, that, that word means things that are mandatory, but it, it's not really referring to the content. It's referring to the, the meter of poetry that he's using. So uh, I'm going to be using here some translations by the great Lebanese poet Amin Rihani, and he does a great job of capturing the feel of the poems. But, of course, in order to do so, he's got to take some liberty with the rhymes. Of course, these things wouldn't rhyme if you translated them literally from Arabic <clears throat> into English. Uh, so he takes some liberty, but it, it does get the the idea across, I think, better, because a literal translation would sound really clunky, and he's getting at the appeal and the philosophy behind these. So here's an example, just one example from that collection. He says, So too the creeds of man... The one prevails until the other comes, and this one fails. When that one triumphs, ah, the lonesome world will always want the latest fairy tales. Okay, so that's you know, some pretty heavy stuff. Then he says, Religion is a maiden veiled in prayer, whose bridal gifts and dowry, those who care, can buy in a mutakalam's shop of words, but I, for such a dirham, cannot spare. Okay, so a mutakalam, it means speaker, but uh, in, in this case he's referring to those who practice kalam, which is essentially uh, theological reasoning and theological argument. So here he's saying, wow, you know, every religion seems really great until the next one comes along, and that seems great, uh, but, you know, a as for me... I don't have time to, to waste time on these things. Hmm, that's pretty harsh stuff. Now, people, of course, interpret him differently. And so many people even today see al-Ma'ari as a great Sufi. And his poems do have kind of the quality of Sufi poems. A lot of them speak of like vague, transcendent powers, Um like, for instance, he says, The way unto the sun, the spaces through, Where King Orion's black-eyed houris slew, The mother of night to guide the wings that bear, The flame divine hid in a drop of dew. Okay, so, I mean, that's referring to something uh, sort of spiritual, but, I mean, it could be almost anything. 
And of course, this is what Sufis are going for, is a mystical connection, the feeling of the spirit, right? And so they, they often do and say things that literally sound blasphemous or unreligious, but have to be understood as transcending human words, Okay, and so a lot of people take al-Ma'ari that way in the sense of he's, you know, not just putting down religion and saying it's bad, but he's talking about going to a higher connection with God that goes beyond things like mosques and uh, ritual prayers and so forth. Right. We can get a lot of this today, or you know, we would call it spiritualism, the idea that there's something out there, there's something divine, but I think it's you know, far beyond any specific religion, and all the religions are just basically trying to give a picture of this. I mean, that's the way he is interpreted today. Um, back in the day, though, I mean, that was not so uh, acceptable. But anyway, when he says something like, now mosques and churches, even a Kaaba stone, Qurans and Bibles, even a martyr's bone, all these and more my heart can tolerate, for my religion is love and love alone. Well, you can interpret this as a higher connection with God that grasps the true faith behind the mosques and the churches. And so remember the different things we have going on at the time. We have the literalists who believe, you know, the Quran should be read exactly literally for what it says. Uh, but then we have the rationalists who say, well, those words are just there for, you know, the, the lesser intellects and great intellects like ours you know, can transcend that. And then you have the Sufis, who are not claiming to be great intellects, but the fact that they are making this direct connection to God, and so it goes beyond all these rituals. So here he is saying, you know, whether it's a mosque or a church, the Kaaba, which, of course, the most holy site in Islam, or martyr's bones, he's referring to the you know, the uh, superstitious kind of things that Christians carried around. He says, all that's fine. I don't, that doesn't bug me because my religion is love and love alone. So, you know, a Sufi would interpret this as meaning he's talking about the love of God, which is so much bigger than all the mosques and the churches. This is what animates the mosques and the churches. You could take it that way. You could also take it in a, a uh, very much in a secular way. So anyway, this is what we have with El Ma'ari. Now he does mention Allah, and he makes a lot of references to Muslim teachings. But then he seems to praise Christian, Jewish, even ancient Babylonian religion. For example, he says, "To humanity, O brother, consecrate thy heart." and shun the hundred sects that prate about the things they little know about. Let all receive thy pity, none thy hate. Okay, so he's talking against all these different sects who, who fight, um, but he's saying you should go for something higher to, to serve humanity as a whole. Now, to the extent that he himself has an ideology, he identified himself as a servant of time or a devotee of time. 
which I mean sounds a little bit odd, but this ties in with a big part of his philosophy, and that is that things come and go. All right, this is why he sees specific religions as just like passing things. He refers to them as pebbles on the beach. Now, this, of course, goes very much against Islam or Christianity, which see history as moving in one direction towards one final end. And that end is basically that their religion is proven to be right and triumphs over all the others. Instead, what he's talking about, it sounds much more Zen-like, like this idea of flow, which I mean a very Zen, Zen-ish uh, principle. And you, you would not be surprised to see that Zen people, um, they like to quote him as well. Okay, so we get the idea. He's, he's proposing a, a very, very generic sort of transcendent philosophy, which at best um, is, is saying that any specific religion is okay uh, as, as a, an attempt to get at this. He's certainly not upholding rigid uh, um, doctrinary Islam which is going to get him a number of enemies. Okay, so all this ties in with the rest of al-Ma'ari's philosophy. Uh, He is known for being a vegan, and as you would imagine, in recent years, this has led to him being rediscovered and championed by folks, because, I mean, he was a very, very, very strict uh, vegan. But it goes well beyond that. I mean, his idea is that all living things... Are, are worthy. I mean, we might say sacred, but he doesn't mean sacred in, in the sense of um, being created by God, just that everything has value and we should respect and care about everything, even the earth, even what we would consider inanimate objects. So, I mean, by today's standards, he'd probably be considered kind of Buddhist or very new age, and a lot of spiritualists today quote his poems, but they quote a lot of Sufis as well. Um, but we have him saying things like, The earth then spoke, my children silent be, same are to God the camel and the flea. Now, this, of course, is, is I mean, quite blasphemous. This is going against uh, monotheistic doctrine uh, completely. I mean, the idea is that God created mankind in his own image very differently from the rest of the animals and judges them differently. But here he's saying that the the way the earth feels, you know, hey, you're just as important as a flea, and so therefore you have to respect those things. And so he is very much against hurting anything. Um, and, and this might make him sound very happy and tranquil, kind of like the Dalai Lama or something, uh, but that is not the case. Uh, he, he's, not, he's not a very jolly guy. He's not known for being a happy guy. In fact, he has a very negative view of the world. And this is because you mean, none of the stuff that he would like to see happen is actually happening. He sees a world where... Uh, the camel and the flea are not being respected, and in fact, humans are not being respected. Uh, people who think differently are not being respected. There is a lot of hate and, and persecution and so forth. In fact, he saw the world as so bad 
uh, is he went as far to say that it was wrong to bring a child into the world. I mean, if you were giving birth to a child, you're basically setting someone up to, for misery, to live in a miserable world. And so, in fact, I mean, and of course, he did not. He did not have any children. He didn't marry. But on his grave, he wanted written, quote, This crime was to me my father done, but by me to no one. And it is. That's what it says on his grave. The crime he's talking about means giving birth. So uh, my father did a crime to me because he, he gave birth to me. And what a rotten thing he did, make me living in this world. But at least, at least I can say I didn't do that to someone else. Okay, so I mean, this is pretty, pretty extreme philosophy, because obviously, if everybody practiced this, there would be nobody. Uh, but anyway, um, going along with that, he lived most of his life in isolation. He spent his early years out getting an education, and then uh, basically, he retreated to his home. And it is said in the latter part of his life, he only left his house once, and that's when he had to testify to defend his brother in court. But he was popular enough, his writings were popular enough that he could do this. He could uh, retreat to his home and uh, basically live there. Uh, So, you know, for for those of us now in the year 2020, living under COVID for the last six months, yeah, we get an idea what that, that is like. You know, we're kind of going crazy having been forced for a couple of months to live in semi-isolation. Uh, here's a guy who's living in self-imposed isolation, and um, he wants to stay there forever. So you, you're getting the idea this is this is not a very happy, jolly guy. Uh, and Although the, a lot of the things he writes, he talks about love and forgiveness and all, but it's um, very much with a, with a negative sense, the sense that he doesn't see that happening in the world, and that really upsets him. But his most famous work is actually a work of prose, uh, and it's considered by many to be one of the first great fiction works in Arabic. And as we discuss it, you'll you'll understand why um, I, uh, I say that classification of fiction is kind of, um, you know, it's a little bit a matter of judgment. But anyway, his most famous work is called uh, the Rasala el Ghorfan, which is known in English as the Epistle of Forgiveness. And this is the book that is said to have inspired Dante. That's only because it seems similar. Uh, we have no evidence that Dante ever read it, but it was actually popular in Europe. Uh, so a lot of people in Europe did read it, but I mean, people think it inspired Dante and you will see why as we go into it. Uh, the book is about a journey to heaven and hell. So you can see the similarity and somebody writing about what, what they saw there. 
uh, which is, of course, that's what uh, Dante's work is. The difference is Dante is very, very serious uh, about what he's saying. And in fact, most of our ideas, the, the ideas that most people have about hell uh, that they think come from the Bible are not in the Bible at all. They come from Dante. Uh, El Maari's vision is a lot different. For one thing, the the work seems to be satirical. I mean, it's humorous, uh, and it's it's very much a a biting uh, parody. Uh, so it's it's a little bit different. It's a uh, sort of a loose connection. Uh, okay. Anyway, so the um, context for this book was an exchange of letters between El Ma'ari, this notorious skeptic, and an otherwise forgotten grammarian who's known as Ibn al-Qarih. And he's, again, another guy who would probably have been forgotten to history if not for the fact that he is featured in El Ma'ari's book. And, you know, if we're talking about a professional grammar expert here, uh, you can kind of imagine the guy's going to be a lot of fun, uh, and, and he seems to be about what you would expect. Now, as strange as this seems, I mean, it might seem a little bit odd. You send me a nasty letter, and so I write a book about you. Um, this was actually fairly common in those days. Uh, people would send letters to each other, but these were kind of like open letters. So they didn't have email, of course, and they didn't have a postal service, uh, so to speak, uh, so basically, they would write these letters that were criticizing and challenging each other's ideas. I mean, today, uh, we do the same thing in journal articles. So somebody writes a journal journal article uh, saying wh- whatever, this is my theory of what's happening. And then someone else writes an article saying, you know, oh, that guy's wrong. That's not, that's not what's really happening and so forth. It's a pretty similar uh, thing. And of course, back then... The difference between a letter and a book is sort of blurry. I mean, it's mostly a question of how long it is. So, I mean, everything was written by hand, right? They were written out, um, had to be done by hand. And, you know, you would write a criticism of someone. You would have it sent out. You would send it to your people, all, you know, all the buddies in your social circle, you would send it perhaps to the the other guy and let his people uh, read it as well. Uh, and if it was really good, it would get recopied and it would be passed around and so forth. And eventually, as what happens in this case, if the letter was, and the response were really good, they would end up being kept in a library somewhere and some of these would get put together. And I mean, they eventually turn into books. I mean, if we think about in the New Testament, uh, like the letters of Paul, right? The letter, Paul's writing a letter to the Romans, to the Ephesian church, and so forth. They become books of the Bible, okay? So in, in a sense, it's a similar thing in, in, in that sense. Uh, so again, this was, this was not at all uncommon that one guy writes a letter. I mean, we say to somebody else. I mean, to is a little bit uh, of a stretch, it's more like you write a letter about somebody else. You know, imagine exchanging uh, letters in the in the op-ed column of, of a newspaper like the New York Times. Similar thing going on here, except that El Ma'ari's response is going to be this great book, which is hundreds of pages long and becomes very famous. 
uh, and uh, Ibn al-Qaris letter is at the beginning of it. Okay, so again, this should not be seen as a personal letter from one guy to another. Um, okay, well, the problem was Ibn al-Qaris, aside from being a grammar expert, and he was very, very rules-oriented, he also had a very traditional by-the-book attitude towards religion. I mean, he approached religion the same way he approached Arabic grammar, which was not unusual. They, they were taught the same way uh, and in the same places. So obviously, he's going to have some serious problems with a guy like Al-Ma'ari based on what we've just said about him. Okay, so this letter is basically a call for El Ma'ari to get himself in line, clean himself up, and come back to the correct religion. And he felt it was his duty because El Ma'ari was very popular, more more popular than this guy was, and you know he felt scandalized by this. So this is an appeal to him to get himself back on track. Okay, and so the response is uh, Rasalat al-Ghurfan. Now, that title may be a bit misleading here. You know, it sounds like an appeal for tolerance and understanding, the epistle of forgiveness. Uh, and, and in fact, based on the, the poems we just mentioned, you know, my religion is love and so forth, we might think that's what it's about. That's not what it refers to. Uh, actually, the title is quite sarcastic, as is just about everything in this book. Uh, a rasala, it is a letter. It does mean a letter, just like one you send in the mail, or you used to send in the mail. Nowadays, the mail is mostly for junk mail. Um, but in the Middle Ages, that could also be like a certificate or a degree, and there, and there wasn't any difference between them. I mean, that's how the first college degrees got started. You would study with a teacher, and then once you learned enough, the teacher would write a letter saying, hey, okay, this person's good, they, they know their stuff, they're qualified to teach whatever, grammar or science, whatever, and you take this letter around. Or you got a, you got a letter from a prince or the king or something like that. Uh, they became a little bit more formalized as colleges started to get bigger. And, then, I mean, of course, the first universities developed in the Arab world. Uh, you would have several teachers signing these things, and they eventually turned into university degrees. Uh, but you can look at a degree and see how much it looks like a letter, right? It's got the seal, it's got the signatures and the seal on it. And if you're unlucky like me, uh, you get one that's written in Latin, and they're trying to make it look like a handwritten letter. And so you put it in a frame, and then nobody knows what this thing is. Um, so if, if, you're, if you're lucky, you get one that's actually written in English, and people can tell it's a college degree and not um, something where they're trying to be fancy. Anyway, that's got nothing to do with this. So uh, we're talking about a that kind of letter, a letter, a certificate um, that's being written here. Okay, so what's happening in this book is that the main character of the book, who is Ibn al-Qara, who again, this is al-Ma'ari's enemy, his rival, uh, he has just died in the book, and he's trying to get into heaven. And the, and the book is about his attempts to get into heaven. 
And so he's got with him this certificate. It's literally a letter that certifies that he is repentant and has been forgiven and therefore can go to heaven. So that's his Risalat al-Ghurfan, or letter of forgiveness, right? It's his, it's his permission slip to get into heaven. Uh, he loses the letter, he can't find it, therefore he can't get into heaven, and so forth. So this thing is basically a comedy of errors. But al-Ma'ari is clearly mocking the whole theology that Ibn al-Qara believes in. And because Ibn al-Qara is such a by-the-book guy, right, he, he's got him, you know, supposedly dead, with this letter, this certificate to get him into heaven, but he loses a piece of paper somehow in heaven, right? Uh, but he's so by the book, you don't have the piece of paper, you can't get in, you can't get into heaven, and, and, and so forth. I mean, it sounds like a bad joke, uh, and eventually it is going to, I mean, he's going to turn it into an extended joke. Okay, so that's the setup for this story. Uh, in And if it starts like that, you can you can kind of imagine the how the tone is going to go from there. You know, we have first Ibn al-Qara sent him this very, very uh, serious letter telling him about his, you know, the in, the impropriety of his thought and his actions. And, of course, it's written in, in the great grammar of a grammarian. And now we get firing back a story about him trying to, trying to get into heaven with this letter. Okay. So... Um, that's going to be the the setup, and of course, right from the start, it's a mockery because you know getting into heaven is not supposed to be a bureaucratic process, right? Um, God knows everything. God is omniscient, and He knows if you deserve to get into heaven, and therefore you will. If not, you go to hell. It doesn't have to do with you know carrying a piece of paper around. Um, but Ibn al-Qara has already warned al-Ma'ari that he's in danger of going to hell because he, he doesn't follow the rules, doesn't follow the right procedures, and, you know, he's, he's deviating. Um, so he, he's going to fire back with a situation of, okay, you're, you're highly bureaucratic by the book God. Um, this is the way he operates, and so if you lose your piece of paper, you're in, in trouble. Um, okay, so the way this story starts out, we have Ibn al-Qara, who is referred to most of the time as the sheikh, meaning the respected one or the elder or the wise man. Um, they, they don't use his real name, uh, but it, it's pretty obvious who he's referring to. And so he, he finds himself dead and outside the gates of heaven. And it's pretty much a mess up there. I mean, it, in a way that, of course, you would not expect heaven to be. Um, you know, it, there's a big crowd up there. People are, you know, pushing and yelling, and there's all sorts of confusion. And we got angels trying to sort this out, but it's like a big mess. Um, now, uh, of course, we we don't know exactly how the bureaucracy back in the 11th century worked. I mean, we always say good things about it, what a great, efficient bureaucracy uh, the early Muslims had. But, 
I mean, it sounds like this thing could be written nowadays. I mean, if, if you think of the notorious bureaucracies in a country like Egypt or, um, you know, Morocco or pretty much most any uh, Arab country, I mean, th- this is sort of the, the kind of mess you would expect, like it's impossible to get anything done. Well, that seems to be what's going on here. So maybe uh, actually when you got down on the ground level, uh, Abbasid bureaucracy was not not as as wonderful as we tend to think it is, because that's clearly what El Maari is depicting here. Now it goes without saying, of course, that this is this is quite disrespectful to be portraying heaven this way, at least to the um, the beliefs of a strict doctrinarian like Ibn al Qada. So I mean, this gives you an indication of what. Al-Ma'adi thinks about the warning he's been given. I mean, if the warning was for him to straighten up, it doesn't sound like he's doing it. Now, Al-Ma'adi is going to be careful for the most part to not really go and outright blaspheme against God or the Quran because, I mean, he, he understands the society he lives in. So he's going to push as much as he can, but he's definitely going to mock all the things people have added to the Quran, meaning all the interpretations, all the things they read between the lines. Uh, it's kind of like the, the Monty Python movie, The Life of Brian, if you've seen that. Uh, that got a lot of flack from religious conservatives and was boycotted by a lot of churches. But even then, the Monty Python people were very careful not to actually mock Jesus or anything in the Bible. Uh, If you haven't seen the movie, it's about a guy named Brian who was born at the same time as Jesus, and uh, some people accidentally think he's the Messiah, and his life turns into a whole farce. So they're very, very careful to make it clear they're not talking about actual Jesus, they're talking about this other guy and all the stuff that happens to him. And so they make fun of everything else, all the traditions of the church and, and all of that stuff, but they, you know, don't go to what they, you know, is is actually written in the Bible. And so, same thing here. Um, Al-Ma'ari is not going to make fun of, of God, obviously, or the prophet. He's not going to do that. But he is going to attack all the traditions that people like Ibn al-Qara believe in. Okay, so what happens to him? Well, he waits around for a long time to get in. And he remembers the Quranic verse that says that the angels and the Spirit ascend to God in a day which is like 50,000 years. Okay. Now, other verses say that a day to God is like a thousand years to us. And scholars have debated over the years, and they certainly debated back then, how to reconcile these verses. And so this becomes a question, okay, how long is a day to God? Uh, is, is it 50,000 years? Is it 1,000 years? And so forth. And I mean, you can, I mean, these are very, very serious debates. You can go on the internet right now and you can see very serious um, religious experts explaining these things. Um, and so that's the, the, the verse that um, El Ma'ari is bringing up. And so, um, Ibn al-Qadr realizes, well, he might have to stay around a lot long time because one day up there is like 50,000 years, and he feels like he's been waiting a long time. Now, uh, of course, 
you, you can see right there the satire that El Ma'ari's making. So, I mean, a liberal thinker like him, and I mean, this is the way a, a lot of, you know, liberal theologians look at this, you know, they say that those verses are not meant to make an exact equation between God time and our time, as we, we talked about in the Ibn Rushdi uh, episode. I mean, the belief is that God is beyond time, and therefore such measurements don't apply to him. So when we say a day to God is like a thousand years to us, it's showing that God is beyond all of these things. Okay, But of course, there are strict by-the-book people, even today, who are, are dictating this. And so you know, one of the popular explanations is that 1,000 years applies to the righteous, and the 50,000 applies to the unrighteous, meaning that one God day equals exactly 1,000 years if you're a righteous person, and 50,000 if you're an unrighteous, because if, you know, you're going to be tormented in hell. Now, again, this is something that people have added to this. That's not what the Quran says. So, you know, a liberal thinker like al-Ma'ari is going to take this as a metaphor. Uh, that kind of literalism is exactly what he's against. But he wants to make fun of Ibn al-Qara trying to equate this spiritual thing to earthly things. So he realizes, okay, one, one day is 50,000 years, and his concern is that he's going to get thirsty, and so, again, it's, it's a mockery, right? He's, he's died and gone, well, outside of heaven, but he still needs to eat and drink. Again, we're making fun of the fact that people like him are trying to describe transcendent ideas in earthly terms. All right, so the, the text is supposedly narrated by Ibn al-Qaeda himself. Uh, and it has, uh, you know, Al Ma'ari's putting a lot of words in his mouth that, you know, make him sound ridiculous. And so at the same time, while he's going through this and having all these problems, uh, he makes fun of the fact that he's a, a, he's a grammar expert. And so he's always giving definitions of words or uh, explaining his, you know, grammatical usage, why something is in, you know, such and such a tense and so forth. Um, so we're getting to see what's on his mind. Like he's facing eternal judgment, like heaven or hell. And what's he thinking about? He's thinking about grammar rules and spelling and so forth. So, I mean, it's, you know, by today's, uh, you know, terms, he's really making him look like a real grammar nerd, right? So, in fact, like just just for one example, um, in, in the opening of the story, Ibn al-Qaeda supposedly the words being put in his mouth, he says, I got up from my grave and went to the plains of judgment. Now, the word he uses for plains here is harsat, which in classical classical Arabic can mean an area that's been stripped of vegetation, but far more often that means desires or passions. And that's the way the Quran uses that word. But since this is an obscure use, I mean, that's... That's a very obscure uh, use of that word. Ibn al-Qara tells us, he uses the word, he says, I went to the harsat. Well, harsat is like arsat, only you replace the letter ayn with the letter ha. So, I mean, he, he's making him sound like a real nerd, like a real tool here, who, who's a, a, a guy narrating this story, which is, you know, should be this very important story, and 
he's he's telling us you know the grammar points and he's also um you know, condescending because he has obviously he assumes the reader won't know this word, but he's going to use it anyway. And it turns out in this case, uh, he, he says it's like the word arsat. Well, arsat is a common word for a vacant lot or bare ground. So it means he could have just e- just as easily have used that word. In fact, he does end up using that word, but he wants to use the fancy word anyway and then explain the fancy word to us, assuming you won't know what it is. And so this is a guy, you know, wh- what a nerd. He's standing there, you know, facing eternal judgment, and he's still, y- you know, um, speaking down to people, condescending to them. You know, I, I-, I went to the harsat. Well, you don't know that, but it's like the word, it's like arsat, you know, just change this letter for this letter. And so he's really, really tearing the guy up. And this is, um, you know, the, the great thing about this book, whatever else you think about it is he's, I mean, he's really, he's really a great satirist the way he just rips the guy apart. Okay, so what, what happens to him um, is Ibn al-Qara gets, he starts to worry, right? He's getting thirsty. He doesn't know what to do. So he seeks out Ridwan. Uh, and Ridwan is traditionally believed to be the guardian of the gates of heaven. It's kind of like St. Peter is in Christian folklore. And in uh, a similarity in both cases, I mean, neither, neither one of them are found in the scriptures doing that. I mean, Peter, of course, is in the Bible, but the idea of Peter actually standing at the gates of heaven and deciding who gets in is a, you know, a completely... Uh, made-up folklore thing, and, and nowadays the only time you ever hear it is in jokes, right, in cartoons. I mean, nobody, uh, n- no one seriously thinks that's real theology. Uh, Ridwan, similarly, I mean, Ridwan is not a joke. People take him seriously, but he, that that is not a character who is found in the Quran. Uh, this is a tradition that has evolved, the idea that Ridwan uh, stands and guards the gates to heaven. And that's the kind of thing Al-Ma'adi is going to go after, right? It's something like that that's not in the Quran, but people have added it and they take it very seriously. That's that's the kind of stuff he's going to go after. So anyway, there's this big crowd in front of Ridwan. Like I said, it's a big mess, right? Um, you know, it looks like, um, you know, whatever, people people at Walmart on Black Friday as it's about to open or something, trying to push their way in. And so Ibn al-Qara has to shove his way to the front, right? Very, very un, un-Islamic-like thing to do, push your way to the front. Uh, and he, he starts calling out Ridwan, Ridwan. He starts calling out his name a lot, but nothing happens. Eventually, he gets all the way up to the front and gets the attention of the angel, and he says, didn't you hear me? To which the angel says, I heard someone yelling Ridwan, but I didn't know you meant me. And, and this is, this is a common name. I mean, it's a fairly, fairly common name uh, in the Arab world. So, I mean, imagine the, the joke would be like you, you get up to heaven and you keep yelling out to St. Peter, you know, Peter, Peter. And then you finally get up to, oh, I didn't know you meant me, Peter. I thought you meant some other Peter. I mean, it's very, very flippant, right? Of course, I mean, he's dealing with themes that people consider sacred. Uh, and he's turning, I mean, you got a big mess of people pushing and shoving. Uh, this guardian angel, I mean, doesn't even realize when someone's calling him and so forth. But again, he's not attacking the Quran. He's attacking stuff that people have added to it. 
Okay. Um, so anyway, this is where the problems start. Okay. So Ibn al-Qarah, he's stuck there with the crowd. Uh, he can't get in. And of course, he's a writer. And he, he wrote poems. And so he starts writing poems to Ridwan. In fact, he starts writing poems for everybody he can find. When he sees people in the, in the crowd, you know, if they're important people, he figures, you know, I'll, I'll write poems for them and maybe they'll help me, right? You're going to get influence. Now, of course, this is, this is what you do as a writer, as a scholar. You write things for important people, you know, so you can get influence. So he, he's doing this up in, in heaven. So he sees, he sees any, anyone who looks important in the crowd. He writes poems of praise to them, but like nobody cares basically. Um, so finally, after all, he's stuck. Ibn Qara remembers he's got this certificate of repentance with him, his Rasalat al-Ghurfan. That's the title of the book. So he figures all I have to do is show this certificate and I can get in. And maybe he would have in this story, but he lost the letter. He can't find the letter. And again, this is this is mockery, right? It's very earthly. You you lose a piece of paper, like it falls out of your clothing, um, and nobody up there can recognize you without the actual piece of paper. And I mean, you you supposedly in this transcendent world in heaven, where I mean, there wouldn't be physical paper or something like that. Um, but again, he's mocking the idea that someone like Ibn al Qara is trying to explain transcendent things in earthly terms. And so, okay, if you want to do that, we're going to play that way. Okay, so you drop the piece of paper in heaven. Okay, great. So, finally, the angel tells him, okay, this is not a problem. I mean, the, the, the angel doesn't know him and can't, can't judge, but he says, uh, did you have any witnesses who saw you get this document? Right, and so, again, we have this, this angel who is tasked, you know, with this very important task, um, but he's not able to discern who this guy is, but, okay, as long as you have witnesses who saw you sign the document, that's good enough. Again, it's another mockery, but it's also a mockery of the, the kind of work that Ibn al-Qarah would do, you know, as a scribe. That's what they did. They wrote documents, and you had to get witnesses to sign the documents. So, oh, it's going to be that way in heaven, too. And, and he, he mentioned several important people, yes, who, who saw him sign the, the document. And these all seem to be real names of people from Ibn al-Qarah's circle in, in his hometown of Aleppo. Uh, so they seem to be actual names. And so in one of the, the funniest scenes, I think, in the book, uh, we, we, have him, we have the angel yelling out to the crowd, uh, where is Abdul Mu'min ibn al-Karim of Aleppo? He keeps yelling this. Right, so, I mean, the guy goes up, and that's the person that uh, ibn al-Qarah said witnessed the letter. And so, again, we have this, this guardian of heaven yelling over this crowd trying to find this guy. Uh, they go yelling around the mob, and they can't find him. Okay, so now now he's in trouble. All right. So there's, there's a lot of scenes where Ibn al-Qarah goes around trying to find somebody who will, will vouch for him. And he finds, he, he has an ancestor who is one of the companions of the prophet. He finds a modern battle. At one point, he, he finds a khalif, 
but basically nobody can help. Nobody knows him. Nobody can vouch for him and so forth. And the, the best scene has to be he comes upon an old man who is being harassed by the crowd because of the numerous grammar mistakes he made on earth. And they're furious about this guy. They're furious about his crimes. They want to see him pay. Um, and, and they start naming them. And they're, of course, ridiculous, ridiculous grammatical points. Like, for example, he said, he, you know, he put the wrong case ending on a word in a sentence and so forth. I mean, it, like really ridiculous things. And finally, Ibn al-Qarah, has to spring to the guy's defense. And he eventually says that such things are not important. He says, quote, it's not like he has stolen from you or shed your blood, he says. And so, I mean, essentially he's criticizing himself, this picky old grammarian, um, right? So, I mean, I mean, you say this is, this is heavily, heavily uh, sarcastic. Okay, so, of course, our hero has to go visit hell, um, and when he first gets down there, he meets Satan, who is being beaten uh, with iron bars by angels, but it, w- it sounds really painful, but he still has time out for a conversation. So he's having a conversation with Satan, who's getting, getting you know, beaten up. Uh, Satan asks who he is, and he tells him he's Ibn al-Qarah of Aleppo, and he says, my profession was literature. <clears throat> Uh, to which Satan says, a very bad profession indeed. You'll never make any money. Many writers ended up being damned because of it. Congratulations on being saved. So here he is. He's, he's mocking, again, Ibn al-Qarah for being so much better than all those other writers. And remember, al-Ma'ari is a writer himself. Uh, and Ibn al-Qarah had criticized him. And in fact, not only in his letter, not only does he criticize al-Ma'ari, he criticizes a lot of writers, you know, for the things they wrote, which were, you know, improper and blasphemous. And so here we have Satan saying, wow, you know, so many writers got sent to hell because of what they wrote. Congratulations to you. You're, you know, you are better than all of them. He's just mocking the guy, right? Um, it is pretty hardcore. Uh, so then the devil asks him for a favor, to which Ibn al-Qarah replies that he's not allowed. And he quotes uh, Surat al-Araf, uh, verse 50 of the Quran, where it describes that the souls in hell will, will call out in, to those in heaven to give them some water, uh, but the, the souls in, in heaven will refuse to do it because God has forbidden it to them. Um, and I mean, this, this, um, El Ma'arig is being, I mean, he's really pushing the boundaries here because he is quoting from the Quran in, you know, this, this idea of how, how cruel it is. But anyway, Satan doesn't want that. He doesn't want water. Uh, instead, uh, he has some questions and his, his questions are all really raunchy, raunchy questions. Like he says, you know, alcohol is allowed in heaven, but forbidden on earth. Uh, and this is a, this is a common Muslim belief. And actually there's a lot of theological debate about this. Well, how can it be? Um, right. The idea that things that are forbidden on heaven 
are not forbidden in, in I mean, excuse me, things that are forbidden in earth are not forbidden in heaven. Well, how can that be? And um, people speculate it's because the, the alcohol doesn't have any intoxicating effect on a soul in, in heaven and so forth. But, the, but Satan wants to know, okay, if that's true, uh, does that mean that the souls in heaven are engaging in sodomy too? Right? Because that's forbidden, so are they doing that? I mean, and he could go on. Does that mean they're committing murder up there? Because they can do that. Now, this is al-Ma'ari um, taking what he thinks is bad logic and pushing it to its natural conclusion. Right? So, okay, if alcohol doesn't affect you in heaven, then what about all the other sins? I mean, does this mean you can go kill your neighbor or something like that? Uh, to him, this is this is rigid logic that he doesn't doesn't like, and so he's going to push it to the natural conclusion. Of course, it's, again, it's a very offensive um, question. To, I mean, even to imply that something like that is happening, and Ibn al-Qaeda doesn't answer, but he curses the devil. And he says, haven't you got enough to think about down here? That's what he asks him, right? I mean, yeah, you're, you're being beaten, you're damned for all time in, in hell, uh, and, and you want to know if there's, you know, sodomy going on up in heaven. But it, it's, it's this idea, this ridiculous thing that this is what the, the devil would be interested in. Uh, and so then he, he, he does meet um, many of the writers that Ibn al-Qara said would end up in hell, uh, he, he meets, for example, the notorious uh, poet uh, Bashar ibn Bird, who wrote lots of wine poetry. And, and even in his life, he was condemned by a lot of religious figures for writing poems about wine and sex, which were very popular. I mean, those, those genres were extremely popular. And, of course, he, he's been cast into hell. Uh, but what's interesting is uh, Bashar, who was blind on earth— I mean, you can sort of tell from this that blindness was fairly common. Uh, he was blind on earth, has now been given eyes so that he can see himself suffer. Um, but he doesn't want to see himself uh, suffer, so uh, Bashar tries to close his eyes, but angels come with hot irons and force his eyes open. And, and so you can see al-Ma'ari is lampooning the idea of... Um, this belief that God, who would take away someone's sight when they need it on earth, but once they get into hell, you get cured of everything just so you can suffer more. Uh, you know, and what he's getting at is the, this is the idea of, of trying to explain very specific things. Okay, well, if, you know, if I lost an arm on earth, will I have the arm when I get back up to heaven? Or what if I was born blind, will I have sight when I get to heaven? And, I mean, these, of course, are very specific questions that theologians trying to answer, and someone like Al-Ma'ari, who is a very, you know, transcendent kind of guy, would say, look, I mean, those are specific, ridiculous questions, like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? And so this is what he's making fun of here. Okay, uh, but anyway, Ibn al-Qara, of course, very, very sanctimonious. Uh, he tells uh, Ibn Burd that he's getting what he deserved because of what he wrote in his poetry, and he quotes some verses to show him why he's being punished. Now, 
Again, he's not going to quote the ones that are about wine and sex, which are the ones that got him in trouble, the really kind of raunchy stuff. But he's going to quote poetry in which Ibn Bard makes grammar mistakes. Again, so he starts lecturing him on using the wrong final vowels, uh, for using the wrong plural forms, and the fact that he uses uh, you know, unapproved meters in his poems and so forth. Again, it's, it's to show us what a, what a nerd this guy is. But the idea is he's, he, he's not only so nerdy about grammar, he's also nerdy about his religious beliefs as well. Well, this story goes on and on, and I mean, you could—it's—it's it's really brilliant, and it's the reason it's—it's it's survived so long because he has so many funny things happening in this. Um, Ibn al-Qaeda will meet poets in hell that he he said would be in heaven and vice versa, but this happens. It's always done by applying his own very rigid logic to them, or at least uh, the parody very extreme form of his logic that Al-Ma'ari uses. So we can see here, this is definitely not the kind of vision Dante had of, of heaven and hell. I mean, this is, I don't know, this is more like the good place version. Uh, if it's similar, it's only similar in the fact that we've got a popular book showing a journey to these places. But, I mean, actually stories about people going to visit and, and see hell and see what it looked like were already around before this. He didn't invent the genre. So the connection is, I mean, it's it's very sketchy at best. Well, anyway, so that's his greatest work. Uh, Ibn al-Ma'adi, uh, excuse me, al-Ma'adi lived to age 83. Uh, he never married, and of course he never had uh, children. He rarely went out of the house. And when he died, the different impacts that he had are really show different uh, strains of thought in the Muslim world. Uh, to, to many liberal thinkers, uh, he is the epitome of rationalism, uh, of free thinking. Uh, for instance, the great Egyptian writer, Taha Hussein, who was, was known in his life as the dean of Arabic literature and was really the leader of educational reform in Egypt in the 20th century. He wrote his doctoral thesis in France about El Ma'ari. Uh, Taha Hussein happened to be another writer who was blind. And it's not a surprise that he would choose a character uh, who, similar to him, not only in that, but who was an opponent of very rigid, hidebound thinking, which is what Taha Hussein was. He was very much against the old Islamic education system. He highly criticized Al-Azhar, which is in, was in very bad shape at the time. Um, and Taha Hussein also upset a lot of people by pushing uh, religious boundaries. Like, for example, his, his book on pre-Islamic poetry was a big one. So for someone like that, El Ma'adi is a, is a great role model, and he, he was uh, very popular. He was taught in schools uh, throughout the Arab world. On the other hand, uh, he had been branded a heretic, and particularly recently he has been rebranded a heretic by um, numerous extremist groups. Uh, for example, the al-Nusra Front in Syria, which is, is, is affiliated with al-Qaeda. It's not affiliated with ISIS. Uh, but nonetheless, they beheaded a statue of al-Ma'ari in 2013. So to, in their eyes, he was definitely a, a heretic. Well, there's still controversy about him today. And that ends... 
our story of a controversial and popular figure of the Islamic Golden Age. If nothing else, it shows us the diversity of opinions that existed at that time, uh, perhaps even more varied and lively uh, than today. And it shows us uh, some of the experimentations in literature with genres, uh, even going way back then. So I hope you've enjoyed the discussion of El Ma'ari. Please let us know. Thank you again for your support, your support on Facebook and on uh, Apple Podcasts and so forth. That's what enables us to stay on the air free of charge. And we hope to see you again for our next episode. Shukran jazilin wa ma'a salama. (laughs) 